Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazadeh, and you guys are in for a fucking treat today. We have none other than my old, old friend, Michael Brodyway. Welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks, dude. I don't feel like I was in a club, but, you know, I'm glad to be on the show. Dude, I pick songs based on the person, and I, we, so none of you know this, but Mike Brodyway and I met freshman year of college in a dorm called Tresero at UC Davis, and I remembered Mike loved to DJ. And he liked, and I, I don't know if it's still true, man, but you were all about the Ace of Bass. So, <laughs> I, you know, I still love me some Ace of Bass. I was, uh, I wanted to be a DJ. And then someone told me I'd be better off being DJ Tanner. This is back when Full House was big. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, the DJ career never made it. Oh, man. Well, look, let's, um, let's get started here. Um, guys, first of all, um, Michael Brody waits here. We got a lot to talk about with him. But the format of the show is quite simple. We're bringing together change makers from all over the world who are living their passions to create greatness in the world. And I will just say this, man, like it's one thing when you don't really know someone that well, but like we've known each other for decades now and just, just to see the greatness you're bringing to the world really, really warms my heart and makes me just feel so special to have you here today, man. So thank you. For Thanks, man. Here. I feel the same way about you. Thank you. So a couple of things, guys, we're live. So uh, I got my team on standby, pump questions in. We're gonna be talking about a ton of different stuff um, and start a watch party go live, ask questions, just drop them in, in the, um, in the feed on Facebook. And yeah, we're going to get this party started. So, um, I always like to do my own personalized, uh, bios cause everyone has their fancy, fancy bios, but I'm going to give you, do you mind if I give you mine, Michael? No, God, please, please. I hate my fancy, fancy bio. <laughs> so Mike wrote my, I, I mean, I always called you Mike. I mean, I go by both. It's confusing. Stick with that. Yeah, yeah, Mike, I always call you Mike. So, dude, Mike is an acclaimed speaker, serial entrepreneur, award-winning CEO, author, leadership coach, and his most important accomplishment was living in the dorms with me for 24 years ago and surviving to be here today. So, dude, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, man. It's a trip thinking about Tercero. God. All right. So, you guys, like, first of all, Mike and I have not spoken and like we, like we ran into each other, I think in Santa Barbara when I transferred, like you guys were partying down in Santa Barbara. We haven't seen each other since like 1999 or 2000. So this is the first time we've actually hung out. And this so is a reunion, guys, you're witnessing it. Everybody's witnessing the, the reunion. It's an inside joke, so we gotta be careful about that. Yeah, 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 I'll, I'll stay away from some of the inside jokes. But, um, but yeah, like he and I both have these really interesting paths where we ended up doing some similar stuff. But I just wanna dive in, man. Like. 
like you have done such cool stuff and 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 obviously we weren't connected through a lot of that time and a lot of it came out of some really tough situations that you have now written about and spoken about and I want to just give the story on how I reconnected with you and I don't know if you remember this but I'm, I don't even know how it popped up like I'm, I'm like we're on Facebook or whatever and I see your TEDx talk TEDx is TEDx Nashville right mm -hmm. yeah so I see that you did a TEDx talk and you don't I don't know if you know this but I was a TEDx curator so I did TEDx Golden Gate Park in San Francisco eight years ago and I did two shows and then I ended up going to TED and I got really involved in TED. So I saw that you did the talk and all the while I'm like quietly like fan, fanboying you. I'm like, dude, that's cool. You got the company, you sold the company. You're the CEO of the Entrepreneur Center at Nash Nashville. You're involved in EO. We have some mutual friends, Andy Bailey, who was on my show. You were friends with him. I talked to him about you. So behind the scenes, like we're not talking, but I'm having these like little conversations about you. And, um, and we're, we're, we're kind of going along these similar paths. And then I see the TEDx talk and I'm like, fuck yeah, dude. And, I, and then I learned of the, this, this hardship you went through in your life. And you do the TED, TEDx talk and then I see it go viral. And I was like, and, and, and I don't know if you know this, but at my TEDx, I had a talk go viral. It's had, it's had 12 million views now from the TED. Wow. It wasn't my talk, but it was one of the guys. It was a guy named um, uh, Scott Dinsmore. It's a really interesting and sad story he actually passed away and i got his talk on the ted website anyway long story short i like i know what it takes to see a, a talk go viral and i saw your talk go viral and i was like fuck yes dude like i knew that that was a game changer and i was just so impressed man so first of all dude congratulations on all the success I, thanks I mean, dude truly. hey you know real quick though you don't know this but um when the ted talk went viral so it was up for a year and after a year, it had like 20,000 views, which was, you know, fine, whatever. Sure. Um, and then we had a weekend where it went from 2,500 views a month to 2,500 views an hour. <laughs> and it was just so like in one weekend, we went from 25,000 views to 100,000. And it just started taking off. And then I and then, you know, my whole thing's about vulnerability and authenticity. And so one of the things I started sharing with people is I was scared that it was going to slow down. Yeah. And then it started to slow down. It, it didn't keep the same pace. It, it, I mean, it's been it keeping thousands of views a day ever since, but like not the same pace. And you did a, I did a post about how I was scared about what that meant. And you commented on that post and you gave me encouragement. And you specifically said that you saw someone have a TED talk go viral. It slowed down, but it continued to grow for five years and it helped them build their movement. Yeah. And that was the hope shot that I needed to, oh. Because like this TED talk isn't just I want to do a TED talk like F that it was my life story. And it's a message for anyone who's a leader and anyone who's a recovering addict out there. And you gave me that type of encouragement. And, and it still resonates for me when I have fear around uh, it not continuing to grow the platform. So I just want you to know, like, dude, even though I don't know if I personally thank you now, I get a chance to on your, on your oh, live cast. Well, dude, it, it was uh, it was the truth. Right. And, and this goes to what you're doing right now with this speaking your truth. And, and I watched the talk and I was like, man, that's a great talk. And I, and I was, I was, well, I was actually, so because I had had the experience of having one of our talks go viral, I, I remember I was so excited when that happened. I, I would go every day and see how many more views it had. And I was doing the exact same thing for you. So, and, and you didn't know that obviously, cause I wasn't telling you that, but yeah, I, I didn't know you were a stalker. I would have gotten a restraining order or something. Dude, I was, super, I was so stalking you. I was, I was like putting on lipstick in the mirror. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> but no, man, it was, it was really cool to see that happen. And obviously from that, you had a book deal and now you're doing all this cool stuff. So dude, tell us like, if you don't mind, because a, a lot of this, uh, the one, the reason I wanted you to have me on the show was you've done these beautiful things. Would you mind just giving our viewers some background on, on sure. how you got to where you're at and what you're doing and all that stuff? So uh, the most important thing anyone can know about me is has nothing to do with my professional accomplishments. It's the fact that I'm a recovering drug addict and I have over 17 years clean. And so my addiction started when I met Darius. He's actually the cause. Um, no, But it started my freshman year of college because when I got to college, I felt like I didn't know how to be comfortable in my own skin. And I distinctly remember a night where a bunch of us were hanging out, you were probably there. And I was there with like my friend Erica and a bunch of people. And I had this like emotional outburst. And I didn't, there was no logic. I was just sensitive. I was emotionally messed up. And I went back to my room and there was a bunch of beer in the fridge. And I was like, dude, I can drink that and feel better. And I felt so lost. And then I watched a Lifetime movie about an alcoholic. 
and I know this is crazy, but this is my freshman year. I see this, I see this lifetime movie and I'm like, you know what? I don't know how to do this thing called life, but I could do that. Wow. Cause my dad's an alcoholic and they told me that I had it in my DNA. And so I was like, I could go be an alcoholic because that life is simple and I probably can just stay numb. And so that's what started my addiction. And through college, I experimented with drugs. I did different things, but I wasn't like a full-blown addict until my junior year. And then that's when it really went downhill and, and it ended up with me at the age of 23 being kicked out of college. Um, I, went, I didn't leave. They kicked me out, um, fired from my job, evicted from my home. My car was repossessed. I was throwing up blood. And I was the only thing keeping me from the street was my buddy's couch, our friend Aaron. Yeah, his, yeah. his couch was the only thing keeping me from the street. And September 1st, 2002, I woke up at the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage, California, which is a rehab facility. And it was my last shot. And I truly believed I would be dead if it didn't work. And then you fast forward 17 years later, and I've been able to not only be a recovering addict, which is the most important part about me, but what's really special is people have seen people talk about great leadership and they've seen people talk about their recovery story from addiction. But what my book does and what my, my platform is all about is taking the system that addicts have been using, millions of addicts have been using for 80 years to recover and applying that as a leadership system that can allow anyone to be truly great. Wow, man. I didn't know that. I mean, I, I, I know some of it from seeing your talk, but it's weird. It's, 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 I don't know. I just had this weird, I, this, I feel weird right now, man. Like I, I, it's really weird to see a friend like go through something like that. And I, and you know, at that point, like we weren't, you know, I was living in a different city, but yeah. I, I remember what you're talking, the night that you're talking about in the dorms. I remember when that happened. Like, I actually, like when you said it, I actually remember the moment I was, I, I was like pretty sure you were there. Yeah. 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 Dude, just, uh, I'm getting emotional right now. Um, well, hey, man, you know, the thing is that a lot of my friends didn't know how much I was struggling. Like, I didn't really share it. I tried to put on a mask. No, you know, it's funny. I like, and so I've, I've been doing a lot of work, um, like a lot of work around like just childhood trauma and, and on myself, actually, over the last like year. And um, at, when you're young like that, like, and your friend like, and you do something like that, let's say, like, cause I'll, I'll tell you, like, from my perspective, like I was immature. Right. And I, and so I was like, Whoa, what the fuck's up with him. Right. Yep. And, and I remember you, you like, I mean, is it cool for us to talk about this? Yeah, uh, dude, I'm a hundred percent open book. So I remember you had a lot of beef with your mom. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and I remember that and you were roommates with my best friend from high school, our sophomore year, Eric Chung. Yep. So I, I remember just like, you know, I'd be around, I'd see, like, I'd see that happen every now and again, you'd be on the phone with your mom, and you'd be fucking screaming, like, I distinctly remember, like, two or three times, at least two times, where, where I saw you screaming at the top of your lungs, like, like, shrieking almost, right? Yep. And, like, as an adult now, knowing that that only comes from a place of, like, deep fucking, like, deep shit, right? Yes. And, and so, to, to, to then attach that to trying to numb that right because we all kind of we want to escape right like that's pain right that that's stuck yep. in your body and you're trying to get it out and i had no idea what to do with it yeah and so it's it's yeah it's it's i i, I like i said man, i'm getting emotional right now because i i was there for some of it and just i didn't i guess i i felt like maybe now as an adult i'm like man i should have done more right but um as a oh friend, no dude no no like <laughs> let i i you are a sweet human for even thinking that but like the people that were absolutely the closest to me didn't really know. And the truth is, is that like, dude, we have a saying in recovery that everything that we've experienced good and bad has prepared us for this moment. And if we like this moment, which what a blessing for me to be able to sit here happy and healthy talking to you, I am grateful for everything that happened exactly the way it was. And you weren't the only one. When I was in treatment, I talked to our friend, Aaron, I talked to our friend, Ann, I talked to Erica and they're all like, dude, I didn't know. Like I was, I was with, I was staying at Aaron's house and he didn't even know. Yeah. Like to the to the the level of suicidal ideation that I was going through, the level of hopelessness that I was feeling, I kept all that bottled up inside because I didn't want to look weak. Um, and and you got to witness a lot of that. But like, yeah, dude, you didn't you didn't do jack, man. That was all me. Yeah, no, no, I I, I, I just feel you, dude. Um, and so you came from this place of great pain, and then and then from that, you say you got a job at Sam Goody. Is that yeah. 
The, I remember, yeah. dude, the, 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 by the way, like the Ace of Base CD cover and Sam Goody are like synonymous, synonymous in my head. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, I started working at a record store um, right near where we went to college, um, a place called The Warehouse oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, in my yeah. active addiction. And um, so I would, I, I was an assistant manager. And so what I would do is I would show up high. Um, I would steal out of the cash register and uh, somehow I didn't get fired and I would steal product in front of the security cameras and they weren't running a tape, thank God, or else I'd, I would have been in jail. Um, and, and so when I got clean, um, I went to rehab and then I went to another rehab uh, because they told me I was sicker than the other addicts. Like who the hell wants to hear that? Right. Um, but, but then I ended up in a halfway house and in that halfway house, when I walked in, they told me I had five business days to get a job or they would kick me out. Wow. And on like day three, I had no interviews at all, but I got one from Sam Goody. Now I do think we need to stop here. You remember Sam Goody, but if somebody is older and they're watching Sam Goody is a record store. If there are age is a CD store. And if you're in the twenties, you have no idea what the fuck Sam Goody is. No, no, no. Like you used to have to go to a store to get our music and physically put something into a player. I feel so old. I feel like, I feel like the white part of my beard right now, just talking about it. <laughs> Dude, I don't feel, I, you know, I just feel like they missed out on all the cool shit we got to do in the analog world, like steal porn. Like they, they don't steal <laughs> porn. Like when you were our age, you had to actually go into a store and steal it because you couldn't buy it and it wasn't right, you free. <laughs> right. You had to like shove it under your shirt and then like go through the risk of everything. Or yeah. if you're if you were an assistant manager of the CD store, you'd find like Reba McIntyre in the rap section and you get all pissed off. Um, <laughs> or you try to like hide the fish CDs because you're like, fuck fish. Um, <laughs> no offense to anyone out there. Actually, yes, I do mean offense yeah, to anyone yeah. out there. Tons of offense. Tons of offense. So, yeah, no. so my first job opportunity was at the Sam Goody place. And, and I distinctly remember uh, that was a moment where I had to decide whether I was serious about recovery or not. Because I called my sponsor and I was like, look, they're going to ask me about all these gaps in my work history. What do I tell them? Like, what lie do I tell them? And my sponsor said, dude, you have to tell them the truth. Wow. And that scared the crap out of me. And, and there are three principles that I learned in recovery that kind of guided my decision-making. And I had to put those principles to work. And one of those principles is practice rigorous authenticity. So that meant I had to be honest, but another one was surrender the outcome. That's something a lot of people don't know how to do. And so I had to surrender what would happen. So I'm sitting there in the interview and the guy asked me about the gap in my work history. And I'm like, this guy is going to judge me. I'm going to feel shame. I mean, who the hell in the job interview wants to tell someone the worst thing about them? especially if that means that you're a drug addict. And so I just sit there and I, I, I just leaned into it. I surrendered the outcome. I told him the truth. I told him that I needed that job or I would be kicked out of the halfway house. And he gave me the job. And we have since come across a stat that says that 85% of the things that we fear never come true. And sitting in that seat, I thought for sure I wouldn't get that job. And I got it and it kind of set up the rest of my career because it allowed me to challenge this notion that we need to hide our true selves in the professional world. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, and you could, one could argue that that was, I mean, I don't want to say luck, but like, what if he had not given you the job? Maybe that would have reinforced this idea that you can't be authentic, right? Dude, you know, I've never really thought scenario planning, like what would happen if he had said no? Like I shudder to think what would have happened because now what I know is the victory is in being yourself anyway. Like it, the victory is in surrendering the outcome anyway. And things have a tendency to work out if we can do that. But as an addict that wanted to control the entire world to avoid discomfort and get what I wanted, if he had said no, I probably would have, I think I would have relapsed. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user 
for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Wow. So it's what you just said right now actually made me think of something, which is uh, I've always, I mean, and you probably don't know this about me, but I mean, I'm fucking crazy competitive goal-oriented person, right? And so um, I, I never enjoyed the process ever. And, I, I, oh, and, and by the way, I don't actually enjoy the win either. And, and so my new mantra, this, is a, this just happened over the last few weeks. And this is like something intuitively I've known and I've heard and like even one of my te- the TED Talks that we did when I did the show was a guy that's like, the name of the show was the pursuit of passion. He's like, his talk was the passion of pursuit, which is enjoying the process and, and, and not caring about the outcome. So you hear this a lot, right? you got to enjoy the process, but the outcome is, you know, you don't just, don't just do it for the outcome. And I've sat here for 20 plus years, probably 30 years, actually probably since I was 10, 11, 12 years old, just having these like grandiose visions of conquest, not enjoying the process and actually feeling like shit when I don't hit the goal. And when I do hit the goal, not celebrating it. Right. Uh, And so my new mantra is the win is the process, right? The win is the path. And, and if it's not, then I shouldn't be doing it. And so it's, I love hearing what you just said right now around this, this, the, the win is the authenticity, you know? And the, um, I love that. I I have the same problem. Like no one, you know, no one really wants to hear this, but like the day that I sold my company and I called the bank to verify the wire for an amount of money in my bank account that I'd never dreamed, which I hate even saying, but it's, it's the truth. Um, I played a song that I had listened to over and over again when we were like hatching this company from scratch. And I thought I would be like euphoric because that's like the movie moment because I had not enjoyed the process. I had, I had, there were elements I enjoyed, sure, but like I was always gripping for the thing that I was scared was going to happen or not happen. And then we, I didn't actually want to sell my company, but still, um, we sold it and, and, and that wire comes in and I remember driving home, listening to this song and I, and I figured I would be excited and I just started crying. I started crying because I didn't want to sell my company. I started crying because, uh, this moment I had been working so hard for, didn't make me whole, didn't make me happy. Um, and you know, John Cabot Zen says something similar. The path is the goal. And, and that is something that 
I continue, that's a growth edge for me still. Like when people ask me, what's the one thing you wish you had done differently within quicker? Um, I say, I wish I'd enjoyed it. <laughs> and at the same time, I am building a program and a movement right now um, with different motives than potentially when I was building in quicker. And I am still struggling to enjoy the process. Sure. I am a lot more mindful about attempting to enjoy the process. And so I'm able to enjoy more of it, but it is still a challenge. It is still a real challenge. And, you know, I just think that just goes back to pain is relative. We always compare other people's outsides to our insides. And I think the real value is, can you achieve a level of inner success that you can sustain? You know, I'm going to real quick. When I, when I first got clean, I walked into my sponsor's house to work a step. I learned the lesson right then and there about what happiness was about. I show up to this really beautiful house in a beautiful part of Nashville. He's got this beautiful car in the driveway and he's got a beautiful wife and he's got a pool in the backyard. And we sit down to do the step work. I'm like, dude, Chuck, if this is what staying clean looks like, dude, I want to get me some clean time, dude. I'm all about this. And he looked at me and he said, dude, all of this is on loan. And if it goes away tomorrow, the real gift is I would be just as happy. And that was when I was like, oh shit, I really do want this because I want whatever that guy has. Cause I'd never had that. My entire happiness was defined by the external and his was being defined by the internal. And I'm all about focusing on what I can control. And that was something I started to aspire to. So I'm still using it as a true North, but it's still, it's still a hard thing to do. Oh yeah. 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 I'm like, I'm like a 1% out of hundred on it, dude. Like I say it and I'm like, yeah, but I don't feel like what you're just saying that right now. I'm like, if everyone took all my shit away right now, I would feel like a fucking loser. And, and which, which answers the question, right? Right. Because I had this experience and we have a question that came in, but I'm going to go there next. I had this experience because I actually had a lot of success by the time I was like 26. I had a multi-million dollar company in my mid twenties. And I, and I was like, you know, I had a $10 million company by the time I was 28. Okay. And, and, and so I, at which, which and this is before being an entrepreneur was like a rock star thing. This is like in the fucking. Oh yeah, totally. Office, right. This is like, there was no fucking support groups for, 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 for entrepreneurs back then. Um, that's how I got into EO and birthing giants and shit like that. Cause I was like, dude, none of my friends are entrepreneurs. Um, and so I bought when I was 26, I bought a Mercedes SL 500, like 3000 miles. Like this is a $130,000 car. Right. And, and I buy this thing and I, I went from a Honda to a fucking Mercedes SL 500. Right? <laughs> and I remember I, the first time I drove it, I was like, this car's, it was, dude, it's amazing. Like that car's a beautiful car. It's amazing. It's just like, it's like, it's just, it is a amazing car to drive. And then this happened to me. The first time I got a fucking scratch on it, yep. I was like, it was painful, right? And I'm like, I can't believe an item is making me feel this pain. Then something, I just, I'm gonna admit this story. This is gonna sound really bad. I, I, my wife, I, Mariah, I apologize right now for what I did 15 years ago. Um, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, takes my car for, she like goes for, I don't know, borrow my car for something. And I was like, not cool with anyone borrowing this car because it's like <laughs> a symbol of my success. Right. By the way, dude, I was living in San Francisco. So like having a car like that in San Francisco is kind of stupid because nobody even has cars in San Francisco. Yeah, it's not very practical. But not at all. Like you don't but have- But if you're an car. entrepreneur that's driving a Honda and you got a multi-million dollar company, it makes sense. Right, right. And so, um, and, and my, my office was a block away from my house. So I drive it down the hill, park it, drive it back up the hill. Um, but anyway, my wife takes it and drives across the Bay Bridge my girlfriend at the time. And I get a phone call, a frantic phone call from her. She's like, oh my God, this guy sideswiped your car. So what, what do you think I, I asked her? Uh, is it okay? Instead of, is she okay? <laughs> I said, is my car okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She said, aren't you going to ask me if I'm okay? Yeah. And I said, well, of course you're okay. You're talking to me right now. But That's but too it, logical. Yeah, it's way too logical, right? So it was. I, I'm surprised she still married me. Um, but <laughs> the, the 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 funny thing was was that this thing, this object. I remember when that happened, and then I remember when I didn't even care about the car anymore. Where I was like, eh, it was like nothing. It was like driving the Honda. And I remembered thinking, and this happened financially for me. I remember like, oh my god, once I make X amount of money, I'm gonna be so happy. And then I made it, and then it didn't feel any different. And by the way, that's happened to me many, many times over. And so I, I've learned the hard way that none, nothing you do externally can ever change the way you feel internally, 
ever. I don't think there's, I, I, besides working with people to help change your internal self, there's absolutely nothing that you will buy, do, get. The bar just goes up a new level. That's at the, least what I had I had a, I totally agree. And I think that I was really fortunate to be a recovering addict as I started my entrepreneurial career because I saw a lot of my fellow entrepreneurs kind of using their business like a drug and using material things like a drug. And I remember I had a spiritual mentor that said, if somebody wins the lottery or is paralyzed from the neck down over a long enough timeline of about a year, they normalize to the same place because it's about relativity. Wow. If you're putting value on the things that are outside of you. And, and so for me, when I, I remember distinctly, you know, when, when we won an Inc 500 award, I was so excited because we had worked hard for that. We were bootstrapped. We were in healthcare. We shouldn't have even been on the list. And then I'm at the event and, and then I see an MF or like you who's higher up and I get like upset. And then, and then they bring the top 10 people on stage and I go, oh dude, I wish that we were there. And, and, and so I've done this my whole life. So forget the business stuff for a second. When I had my own apartment, I was less happy than when I was in that halfway house sharing a 10 by 12 room with two other dudes that used to talk to their girlfriends on speakerphone while I was trying to sleep, where the only thing I had was an accordion file, two, cha two, two changes of clothes and my recovery. And, and, and that was the happiest time that I could remember because all of my, I had nothing externally and I was still so fresh in my recovery that I had no reason to expect anything externally. So a hundred percent of my focus was on how do I get content being me so that I don't use fucking drugs? That is my goal. And I surrounded myself with other recovering addicts in order to work a 12 step program to achieve this thing called recovery. And to this day, no matter what has gone on in my life, I've been through a divorce. I've been through the ups and downs of a professional life. I've been through different health stuff. Like I've done through all these different things. The only thing that I know is on Wednesday and Friday nights, when I am with my home group and we go to, well, we don't do it right now, but when we go, when we go to virtual dinner, but when we used to go to dinner, um, that I was around a group of people that did not matter what was going on with them externally. If we were in the process of recovery and practicing surrender and practicing faith and doing uncomfortable work, we were content and happy together. And that was always like the place where I got grounded. And, and I think without that, I would have turned my work life and material things into an addiction. And I think it would have inevitably set me up for a relapse. I, I, wanna, I wanna make one point then I'm gonna ask a question to you, uh, of you that came from the audience. Um, I think what, what I just heard you say was that when, you're, when you have gratitude, that you're, you're that, like when you feel that gratitude about the experience you just spoke about. And I think gratitude can go in many different directions, right? This is being happy with yourself and happy with what's happening in your life and just grateful, right? Just this position of gratitude that you, know, you, you, you can't have fear because they always say you can't be grateful and fearful at the same time. And I do think- I don't know who the fuck says that. I feel both all the time. Really? <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, I feel uh, fear uh, all the time and gratitude oh, no. all the time. Oh, man. No, I think it's at the moment, right? I don't think it's actually- Oh, like, maybe. That might be true. Not macro. I meant micro. Like, like if you, like, they'll say, like, wake up and write what you're grateful for. If you start having anxiety, think about what you're grateful for. You it actually make, you can't feel fear and gratitude at the same moment. Right? Got it. So, that but I agree with you. Like, 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 I, I, I I'm going to say this wholeheartedly right now. I don't think I have gratitude for my life. And I, but I fight for it. I, I think I live from, I live from a place of fear. I think that it comes from some really fucked up things that happened to me and that was built like burnt into my soul and that I'm, I'm, I'm killing it away now. Part of the show is that. Um, and so anyway, hearing you say that just makes me really appreciative of where you're coming from. And I'm very grateful to have you here, dude. I, 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 I was, I'm telling you, I was so looking forward to having this conversation, not even having no idea what we were going to talk about, but knowing yeah. that I wanted to reconnect with you and like, just like, we've been through so much just to be able to have this moment. So thank you for that, dude. Oh, dude, no, thank you for, I mean, it's one thing to, you were reminding me um, both of my past and my present. Cause like, while we've had different paths, I remember what it felt like to be that freshman in college and, and the different things I was going through and you went through your stuff. And then for us to have like, you know, different journeys, but somewhat similar and be able to be here. I think the best thing is the ability to 
not pretend that we're not grateful for success and not um, hold back and hide the pain and the challenges that we've had. I think too many people do either one or the other. They only focus on the great things and they, and they brag and they do all this stuff or they, they only focus on the bad things or the humble things and they do arrogant humility. And the real cool thing is when you're dealing with a human that is willing to experience the full spectrum of their humanity and that's their unique perspective. And that is so hard to do in a world where everybody's trying to get you to stop being yourself and be somebody else. Oh yeah. So be able to do this here, this is great. Yeah, what was yeah. the question? Yeah, yeah, let's jump to the question. Um, question, what made you pursue something as big as a TED Talk? <laughs> uh, you know, the TED Talk almost never didn't happen. Um, first of all, as an entrepreneur, you are required to love TED Talks. You get kicked out of the entrepreneur group if you don't love them. And so, uh, you know, one, the two first uh, TED Talks that I saw were um, Brene Brown's The Power of Vulnerability, um, which led to me becoming um, a complete worshiper of hers. And, and then Simon Sinek's, um, you know, start with why, or uh, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it, however the title right. is. And, and I made everybody watch at my company, um, Simon's uh, TED Talk twice, and I made everybody read Brene Brown's books. And so I saw how 18 minutes changed my life um, in those examples, both personally and professionally. And I, so I, so I idolized and I never actually, it's kind of like, I like bands that go platinum. I never like ever think, oh, I'll go platinum because I can't sing. Um, so I never thought that I would be able to do a Ted talk, but you know, I, 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 I knew what they were, built my company, sold it. And then, um, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my time, I was like, I got to do something where I'm giving back. And then the nonprofit that helped me as an entrepreneur needed a new CEO. And so I went and I took over that nonprofit called the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. And when I was there, um, TEDx Nashville was interested in having me um, join their board because of the stuff I'd done in Nashville, because of where I was in terms of our entrepreneurship ecosystem. But when they met with me and we got, and I got to share my story with them, they're like, oh, we're interested in having you do a TED talk. And I was scared. So like, this is effed up, but like, I am a public speaker and I am scared of public speaking. Like, I'm not someone who's like, oh, I'm so comfortable on stage. Like, no, dude, it's a lot of work. Uh, you know, someone said, courage is not the absence of fear. It's a willingness to walk through it. That's what happens. So I was really intimidated by the process, but um, when they heard my story, uh, they asked me and I said, no. Wow. And so if I had, if that's where the story stopped, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this right now. Um, and here was why I said no, it was for a good reason. It wasn't out of fear. I thought that if I pursued sharing my story through a Ted talk, that it wouldn't be in service to the organization that I was, I was trying to serve. Uh, we were trying to help 2000 entrepreneurs start a grow a business every year in Nashville. And it felt self-indulgent and self-centered for me to talk about my story because I didn't want to talk about entrepreneurship, but generally I want to talk about great leaders do what drug addicts do, which is what the Ted talk ended up being. Um, and so one of the entrepreneurs that was one of our mentors at the entrepreneur center, um, I shared kind of like casually that I had turned it down. Um, even though I wanted to do it. Um, and he called me, he was like, what the hell is wrong with you? You just got offered to do a Ted talk. And I told him my rationale. He's like, you are stupid. <laughs> He's like, it does not matter if you get up on that stage and you talk about something completely unrelated to the Nashville Entrepreneur Center by doing it and sharing your story. It only adds value to the Nashville Entrepreneur Center and the entrepreneurs that you're serving because your story matters. And also it'll create visibility for where you're serving right now. And, and um, his name is Dove Hirsch. So if you're out there, Dove, love you, dude. Um, and, and so uh, the next year when they asked again, I said, yes. And that's what led to me doing it. And then I worked my ass off to um, make sure I've got a lot of stories and a lot of messages. It's really hard to say how to be an authentic leader and an entrepreneur and then how to be a recovering addict and all this stuff. Um, and I had a great coach. Uh, his name is Jeremy Snow. Um, and he actually helped me with the book as well. But I worked so hard on refining the points that I wanted to make. Um, and I remember thinking is all this work. Like I remember I was working out on my, at my wedding at my honeymoon. Like I would, my wife was fully supportive. 
and and then I did it and um, we didn't expect it to go by. I mean, it didn't the first year. I was like, oh, I did it. And, and my goal was to carry that message for an addict that's suffering or for a leader that wants to learn how to be authentic. And I did it. The goal was to put the life's work out there. The goal wasn't to get the impact um, in terms of like quantity. And so I was really grateful and proud of it. And then when it started to go nuts, that was, that's when things like went, went a little crazy, but I, I, it almost didn't happen. And it was, it was out of like what I would call arrogant humility. Um, oh, I don't want to be too f about me. So I'm not going to tell my story. And then like, that would have been really bad. What, um, what was the tipping point that made it go from 20,000 to start? Well, like, was there must've been something that grabbed it and pulled it. We you honestly know? don't know. Oh, so, really? So we don't know the, the two things that, that we know were happening contextually at the time was um, it had been accelerating over a period of time. And so what we were noticing from our friends was the algorithm was getting better at recommending it. And, um, and we found out that the algorithm takes something and I don't know if this is true, but like at that time around 20,000 to 25,000 views to be able to really refine who it's recommending it to. And then of course it's got to recommend and people on YouTube have to like actually click it. And so we crossed this 25,000 mark right around when I started doing social media on authentic leadership. But I mean, dude, I had on Instagram, I had like three followers and it was my dog, my cat, my wife. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's not like I had this huge platform that, you know, was happening. Um, also, it, it started to go viral within Dell computer because that's where that's a fortune 50 company that I worked at. Right. And so I was getting a lot of messages from people at Dell. So all those things, it hit about 25,000 views. We started doing social, but I don't think that had anything to do with it. And Dell started sharing it within the company, but that's not, there weren't enough people that I knew at Dell to share it. So our biggest conclusion is the algorithm got better at serving it to people that were interested in recovery or leadership. And it just started to accelerate. And it spent like three months accelerating where my wife would watch it and be like, Oh, it's going faster. Oh, it's going faster. And then we had that weekend where it just went nuts. And oh. then, yeah, but we still don't know. I would love if YouTube could like call me and tell me, cause like, we still don't know. Yeah, I'm just grateful uh, for it. Yeah. yeah I mean, whatever it went, it went, that's, that's what matters. Well, that's, that's so cool. So let, let's talk about the book. So the talk ends up going viral. I, and, and what was interesting was my experience with the viral talk was his went viral out of the gates. He was so like he was like mechanical about Darius. I only want my talk to go out at two four o'clock on Tuesday. Like I had to do all the special shit for him, and I was like, "Are you seriously serious, bro?" And it, right out of the gate, went viral. And I was like, "This guy had been studying how to make a talk go viral, and he nailed it." Um, so your talk goes viral. You then get the book deal, and and you write you write the book. So let's talk about the book because that that was really I was I I, I mean obviously I wanted to catch up a lot of things, but that's the most newest thing that just happened. So let's talk about your book, dude. So the book, so the entire um, genesis for the book came from a breakfast with one of my employees at Inquicker named Julie. Um, and she was talking about some struggles she was having. And I was like, dude, you just have to be authentic. And I was like, I gave you all these Brene Brown books. Haven't you read them? And she's yeah. like, I can't do the things that you do. Like you read these things and you actually implement them. But like I read them, I get inspired. And then six months later, I'm doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, especially in the self-help and in the inspiration and motivation and business world, we are really long on inspiration and we are really short on implementation. And then the implementation that we actually have access to is very rarely implementation for dummies, um, you know, or 101 or foolproof. And so um, for me, when the book started, I mean, so when the TED Talk started going viral, I was like, I, I have an entire methodology for how to, so the, so the TED Talk's based on the three principles of practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. Tell stories about it. Talk about how I did that in, in my life and in my business. And people love the principles. And the thing that pissed me off is that doesn't do jack for them. I would see an addict that was clean when I was using and seeing that they were clean didn't do jack for me. Them telling me that they went to meetings didn't do jack for me. What I love about rehab, and I swear this is getting to the book because the book is a form of rehab. What I love about rehab is anyone who has an addict in their life, they know that you can tell an addict to stop using until you are blue in the face and they will not stop. 
the only time recovery starts is when you tell them what to start instead. So when I woke up at Betty Ford Center, they didn't say, hey, man, stop using. Here's the book. They said, here is a 12-step program that you have to execute every day for the rest of your life if you want to stay clean and you want to be able to get that. So when I looked at being an authentic leader or what I call a mask-free leader, um, I was like, I have to build the equivalent of a 12-step program, not just three principles and some inspiration and whatever. I need to give people a step-by-step. And so one of the things I realized was, well, wait a second. 12-step fellowships didn't start exploding until they actually created the 12 steps because for years they were meeting and they didn't have the 12 steps. And then they didn't really explode until they had a book that codified what they were doing in meetings and gave people the step-by-step on how to do it. So I set about trying to figure out how I could write a book where I essentially take these three principles and I turn them into a a, a real system that is a step-by-step system, just like a 12-step system, that allows anyone to execute this system. And in one minute a day, they can actually learn how to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work, reclaim 500 hours a year, be less stressed, be their true self and achieve their full potential, not just through inspiration, but through actual practical implementation. And so the book, the way the chapters are set up, it is structured to essentially be a form of rehab. I call it, it's like mask rehab. It's, it's, and you know, for we're in a pandemic, I, I think everybody walks around and they're addicted to hiding themselves behind a philosophical mask. And so this is all about taking the process that I use in recovery to help other people overcome what I call mask addiction. And so the first chapter is hi, I'm Mike, I'm an addict. I share with them what addiction looks like. The second chapter is you're so-and-so you're a mask addict. And I talk about the reason that we talk about authentic leaders, but we don't have authentic leaders is because we haven't diagnosed the problem, which is mask addiction. And then the third chapter is the addict's advantage. And it talks about why overcoming mask addiction and in recovery is a competitive game changer right now in business. And then the rest of the book goes into a step-by-step on how to implement the system and the mastery program that I created. So when you talk about masks, um, this dude, this is so intriguing. Uh, When you talk about this idea of masks and are you saying essentially that I'll give an example, like, Oh, I want people to see me this way. So I throw this mask on and this is who I am at that moment. And then, Oh, I, Oh, I'm in front of this new group. So new mask or, or whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. They're, they're faking it or they're put, maybe it's not even faking. It's just this like non-authentic version of who they are because they're afraid of actually showing who they truly are. Is that what you're essentially saying? Yeah. So like, and even more specifically, generally speaking, leaders have operated in a command and control leadership structure for centuries. Um, Whether you're a general on the battlefield in a corporate America or as an entrepreneur, you think that you can't show weakness. You can't show insecurity. You can't show doubt. You can't show your failures. You can't show who you truly are because people will not respect you. So you have to play the game. You have to show the role. So like, for example, look at my set here. So I got my book over there with a light. I got my art here because I think that's what is supposed to happen. I'm subtly trying to manipulate the way that people perceive me. Um, And I think that that happens incredibly more at work than anywhere else. And so one of the things that I started doing was trying to spot inauthenticity because in rehab, you got to spot the problem. And so I created a mask assessment And so the mask is essentially you hiding yourself, but after assessing over 1500 leaders from the boardroom to the mailroom, companies like Google, Dell, HCA, global payments and nonprofits and startups, 1500 people I've assessed, I've boiled it down to four masks. There are four masks that are holding back every individual team and organization in the world. And the first one is the mask of saying yes, when you could say no. That's whether it's to meetings, projects, whatever. People spend 31 hours a month in unnecessary meetings alone. Um, So saying yes when you could say no. The second one is the mask of hiding a weakness. So one of the things that really set me apart in corporate America was I aggressively shared my weaknesses. And and people think you're not supposed to do that. Well, as CEO of a company, I actually told my team I had no idea how to run the company. That's not what you're supposed to do as a CEO. But I shared my weaknesses in a creative environment where they could do the same. So the third one, the third mask is avoiding difficult conversations. 70% of uh, employees right now are avoiding a difficult conversation with either their boss, a coworker, or someone they manage. And that's before you start talking about external people like customers, friends, and family. And then the fourth mask is holding back your unique perspective. We are taught how to uh, follow, not how to lead. 
And so when our boss's boss is in the room, we don't say, I don't know, or we don't challenge the thing or whatever. And so we say yes, when we could say no, we hide weaknesses, we avoid difficult conversations, we hold back our unique perspective. All of these are obscuring our true us. And in aggregate, it costs us 500 hours a year. But more importantly, it costs us our one chance of living the true life we were meant to live. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, you, I love this, man. Um, so funny you brought up the set, right? Like the background. And we talked earlier on the show about my background. So yeah. actually my background is masked off, dude. This is like, I got Mr. Miyagi signature signed photo back there. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, I'm like, missed this. Oh, dude, favorite. I didn't know it was Mr. Miyagi. I love that. I, I do yeah. a whole talk on, on how, um, mask how recovery is like um learning karate from Mis mr miyagi and it's a whole other thing yeah no no i'm uh, it's my favorite and movie. so you're gonna tell me about the unicorn you promised yes. you would tell me about the unicorn i started with mr miyagi but i i'm gonna finish on the unicorn so to my right here is a framed picture of a pink unicorn and which what you don't know is a t-shirt and so my wife my my oldest son who's 10 now when he was three was like obsessed with my little pony i mean obsessed I mean, and he was obsessed with Pinkie Pie Pony. So my wife makes my son and I, she, my wife's very creative and crafty. So she used to make us t-shirts all the time. So she, for Christmas, she makes my son and I pink unicorn t-shirts. So I worked at the office one day and we were, and, then we, and this is like when we were just like scaling and early in, in the business. And, um, and my staff was like, went bananas on the pink unicorn. And so it just went viral in my company. But the, the big thing that I, that I realized with it was I, I started saying this, I said, you know, our, our core purpose, and you were talking about Simon Sinek, I actually met Simon Sinek before you did that talk and, and did a, a workshop with him. So I got really involved in, in your why and core purpose. And so when I, when I built the business uh, at the Money Source, I made our why to grow happiness in the mortgage industry, because this is 2012, 13, the mortgage industry, which, which we didn't go into this, got fucking crushed in 2007 and eight, like crushed, yeah. like where I went from hundred, when I was at the Inc. 500 conference, because I think back then it was still for the Inc. 500 and I was number 40 on the stage. I was the 40th fastest shrinking company in the United States that day. I was up there in mm -hmm. black tie and my company had gone from 150 employees to 10 employees wow. in 90 days. And I got, and I almost went bankrupt. And so it was a really miserable experience for me actually. And, and I spent the next five years in entrepreneurial purgatory where I lost money or didn't, I didn't literally make a dollar for five years. And so I came out of that and had my biggest success was the most recent business. But I said, I got to do it differently. It's got to be about like, what does everyone want in their life? And, and, and I'm not the best at doing this. It's the funniest part. My number one core value is happiness because I fight for it all the time. Yes, said, that makes sense though. Yeah, right. And so I said, we're, our, core, our, core, our why is to grow happiness. And so I said, the pink unicorn symbolizes happiness in this industry, which now is better, but back then had a lot of like negativity in it. I said, this symbolizes happiness in the mortgage industry. It's a mythical creature that people don't think exists, but it does here. And then, and then it just went, and then it became fun and went viral. But, but for me, I realized, you know, I, I stepped down as CEO in November and I realized, man, that's, this is my spirit animal. Like I'm out, I'm about finding happiness and trying, and I know that everyone's like, well, Darius, you got to find it from within. I'm like, yeah, easier said than fucking done. Like, yes. you know, or maybe not, maybe I just have this roadblock in front of me, but for me, I, I, I'm the, this is symbolizes what, what I care about, you know? And, and so for me, what I say now is it symbolizes living a core value driven existence, which is what my book is about. It's how do you build a core value driven organization? So I wanted to, we got a few more minutes here, but I wanted to ask you, and we talked about this before the show, how do, you know, for me, my book is coming out in five weeks and it's all about how do you build a core value driven organization and your, your business, your, the, your book and your, your movement is around mass free leadership and mass free life. How do values, how do core values for yourself or, or in general play into that? Well, I think the, so I think core values and uh, I know enough about you that I can assume that you're going to agree with this, but like, so there's a lot of um, rhetoric around core values when we're building companies and, and, and your book, I think really, um, I haven't read the book, but when I read the jacket, it definitely addresses this, but people think of values as something on the wall. And, 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 and the truth is, is that core values are nothing more than alignment drivers. And, and we have a tendency to think of them as having morality and they don't. So if you are Tony Soprano and you're in the mafia, one of your core values is you kill a snitch. And, and everybody knows that that's what they're supposed to do. 
And, and so I, I really like um, how you, you call them an invisible manager. Like, I really like that part because it's all about driving alignment. And so for, for me personally, the thing that I teach entrepreneurs and founders is don't go looking for your values and don't make them up. You already have them. And if your core values for your company aren't built, if you're the founder on your personal core values, then you will at some point breach your own integrity because you'll be trying to do the values that you think sound good that other people want. And then there's going to be the values that you actually live by. I was really fortunate in that recovery from addiction defines my entire lens by which I look at life. I had no choice but to look at the values that I had to live by as a recovering addict. And that's like, so in my TED talk and in my book, I talk about this moment where we risk everything and we mess something up. We're going to go bankrupt because we have to tell a customer that we messed something up on a contract right. and every, and they don't know about it. And everybody's telling me not to tell them and screw up the company. I have to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work no matter what for my recovery. So I do it there as a leader. We end up getting a seven figure contract. We end up, you know, growing like crazy. And I get to tell that story to every single customer and every single employee after to say these values, I don't just live personally. These values aren't just the intent for the company. This is how we live as a team. And, and so for me, I will tell you, and my team would be, will not be insulted by this. We had a lot of B plus players. If you look at resumes and all that stuff, but from an alignment with my values and with our values as a company, they were a plus. And as a result with 50 employees, we would go up against companies with 150 million venture capital and my credit card, and we would win. And, and we, we would go up against huge, huge companies with 600 employees and we would just slaughter them um, because we live by these three values. And the truth is, is that people want to work with other people that are authentic. They just don't know how to do it themselves. And, they, and, and as a result, we all just sit there and we say all this bullshit or whatever. So our, our core, we had a, what I call a mask-free culture, a culture where anyone could tell anyone no. You could say no to a customer. You could say no to the CEO, me. We had a culture where everybody shared their weaknesses. I would fire you for not sharing your weakness, not for having one. And I would go to my team every week and tell them my biggest weaknesses without the sandwich with the positive. Like I literally be like, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. We would have the difficult conversation in one meeting so that we didn't have seven meetings and dance around a topic. And everybody's unique perspective was valued, whether you're the executive assistant or the CEO, we all had equal weight in identifying blind spots and activating innovation. And so it all came from my recovery. And so we built this mastery culture based off of what I experienced in recovery. And I don't think we would have been as successful. The most successful, the thing that drove the most success for us was the mastery culture. And that was rooted in the values. So I 100% agree that they are an invisible manager and they are a game changer. Yeah, I, um, the, the one thing when you, when you read the book, I'm going to give away a little piece of it right now is what I say is that core values have the opportunity to become the language of the organization. And if you, if, and for the people that are into like NLP or they're into like landmark or est or stuff like that, there's this whole belief that the conversations we have shape the results of our life. So my belief is, is that once you control the language, then you control the results. And if the core values have the opportunity to be the language, like what conversations are you having with yourself? You talked around mastery leadership. What are you, what are the conversations you're telling me? Authenticity, showing uh, vulnerability and like basically saying, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing is part of that. And when you, that became the language of your organization, people lived it and the results showed. So kudos to you, man. I, like, I love hearing all this. I think you're a perfect example of someone that embraced what you are and who you are and made it come to life and said, fuck everybody that doesn't want me, wants me to throw on a mask and pretend like I'm something I'm not. And that's, that's the lesson, lesson I'm learning at least. Although I do want to say for anyone that's listening, if you're still earlier in your entrepreneurial journey, um, when I wanted to lead with those values, I had mentors that told me I was naive and stupid. And I tried to not be authentic for a period of time. I tried to not live by those values because I thought I was, cause I don't have a college degree. I'm just a recovering addict. What do I know about like how to run a company, right? And so these people would tell me, oh, you, you don't do that, you don't do that. And it's when I came across Brene Brown's work, when I read Gifts of Imperfection and Daring Greatly, I was like, oh my God, I can actually use my recovery as my leadership skill set. And, and she gave me permission to reinvent leadership for myself. 
um, and align it with what mattered most. And, and so there was a period of time, and I'm sure there were other periods of time where I didn't live my values. Also, I, and one thing I did with my book is um, everybody likes to end their book with like, okay, so if you do everything I said, you're going to have like this wonderful life and you're going to get a Lamborghini and I have a Lamborghini and we're all good. I don't have a Lamborghini. And, and, and I ended the book with uh, the last chapter is called A Tale of Two Divorces. And it's about the year that I had to divorce my business partner, my wife and sell the business that I wanted to keep forever. And it's all because I experienced what I call a mask relapse. And it's where I stopped doing all of the things that I tell the reader to do in the book so that they can learn from my experience doing it. And so we have times where we don't live by our values and we second guess ourselves, but I needed someone to give me permission to live by my values, even though it challenges status quo. And I will say that I don't think it necessarily means that my values are better. I just think I'm a far less effective human if I'm living, if I'm living out of alignment with my values. And then as a company, same thing. So like, I'm not judging a company that doesn't believe in authenticity. Well, I probably am, but, but, but it's just live, live within the alignment of your values. And that allows you to release a tremendous amount of energy in your value proposition, in your culture, in your people. Yeah, you know, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head, which is my belief is really simple from what you're saying. And, and, and I touch on this in my book, which is like when you you know, when you're living out of alignment with it, values are about alignment to your point. So let's in one of the sub chapters of my book says core values don't need to be nice and you use the Tony Soprano example. And I yep. would say, like, hey, they have unapologetic loyalty to the point where they'll fucking put a cap in your head if you if you yep. get it wrong, right? That's, that's, yep. That is unapologetic loyalty. You may not like the tactical side of that, but they believe in loyalty. You can't be a snitch. Sorry, dude. Yeah. Uh, and what I say is core values don't need to be nice. And when people, and, and I think that that's a, a more controversial way of saying, just be authentic, right? And you see all these people, I mean, dude, Enron's number two core value is integrity. What, what, what I actually like to joke, I jokingly say this to people now, I go, the fact that they lied and said it was integrity is actually them kind of living their core values. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually, I get that. That was an inception moment. That's like a dream within a dream right there. I like it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, man, um, I, I, I think that there's so much that can be learned and the fact that you've co codified this, 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 this tactic that's used to overcome the disease of, of addiction, which, which it's in a disease and, and yep. to overcome this thing that's, that's so difficult and now to apply it in this new way, or maybe not in a new way, but in a way that it's your way that is, that is so effective and changing so many lives man i'm just so proud to 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 even have you here talking about this so thank you so much my friend no dude thanks for having me on and i'm i'm grateful for the work that you're doing in the world too who would have thought tercero peeps uh showing up for the world yeah by the, by the way um uh i always tell people who have never sat in a lambo you, it's really uncomfortable to be like one inch off the floor <laughs> So. I've never sat in one. I, I have no desire to have one. I, I, I think they're so impractical. <laughs> uh, I, so I, first time I sat in a Lambo, this guy and his brother got one and I weighed about 300 pounds at the time and I didn't even fit the seat. And the second time I couldn't get in um, because there's something like I said, if you ever want to know what it's like to sit in a Lambo, just sit on the floor of your house. And that's, and that's imagine getting into that car every day. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, look, where can everyone find you? I, 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 the book's out. The TED Talks on on is out there. Like, where can people find you? And and yeah, what's let, let's get the the viewers the the plug. Sure. So if you um, want to get the book, you can go to greatleaderbook.com, greatleaderbook.com, simple URL. You can also just search for Great Leaders of Like Drug Addicts on Amazon. But um, even more importantly, because the book is the tool that helps people, and my goal isn't to sell books; it's to actually change people's lives. And so, if you heard anything about these masks and you want to identify the mask that's holding you back, you can go to what, whatsmymask.com. So W-H-A-T-S-M-Y-M-A-S-K, whatsmymask.com. And you can take our mask assessment and in five minutes, you'll know the mask that's holding you back, which one saying yes when you could say no, hiding a weakness, those sorts of things. You can also find out what your authenticity percentage is and you can get a personalized report on your level of authenticity and one of the thing, a couple of the things that you can do to increase your authenticity and your leadership and it's free. And then when you do that, you get an account in our mass free program, which begins your mass free rehab if you, if you so choose. Oh, that's so cool. I'm, I'm going to jump and go do that. I, I, I love that. Well, you guys, um, first of all, Mr. Michael Birdie Wade, what a, what a freaking reunion, my friend.
Dude, this is great. I, I feel like we should have brought the peeps from uh, from Tercero into this, but uh, it was great connecting with you, man. Yeah, likewise. Keith, Aaron, Brian, all the ladies. Miss you, love you. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, we have to send this to them now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, guys, thank you so much. Uh, what a treat. What a, what a great way to start Friday. Um, we got a couple more shows today, uh, but... Michael Brody, wait, my brother, it's so good to reconnect. I'm so excited for everything you're doing and for us to, you know, continue this journey together. Um, guys, uh, if you like what you're watching, follow us on Facebook at The Real Darius M. And you can also go to my website, www.therealdarius.com and sign up for all the social stuff. And uh, peace. We love you. Out. Awesome. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.